Thanks to Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Just go to harrys.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, September 22nd, and we're talking small cap tech stocks. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com's Todd Campbell. Todd, listeners might be a little disoriented hearing your voice on today's show. They might be just a little bit if they tune in to all the different shows that we do. Uh, and But I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, for listeners that do not listen to every Industry Focus show, Todd is usually on the Wednesday healthcare show with Christine Hargis. Um, I'm stealing him this week. Hopefully, Christine does not get mad if she listens to us while she's over in Greece. And uh, you know, we don't want to we don't want to cause any issues between the folks on the Wednesday show. Hey, you know, Dylan, I won't tell if you won't tell. Yeah, we, we can keep it our little secret. Um, <laughs> listeners and, have to play along. Yeah, and and listeners, uh, while Todd does cover healthcare primarily, he is a bit of a generalist as well, and has spent a decent amount of time following some of the small cap tech names that we're going to talk about today. And frankly, they've done pretty darn well. So I was excited to bring him on to talk about the topic today. Um, Todd, before we really get into the companies, though. Broadly, why don't we talk about small cap tech stocks a little bit, and maybe just what's a small cap stock for listeners that don't know? Yeah, small cap stocks are exciting ways for investors to get involved in companies that could be truly disruptive, right, Dylan? I mean, these are companies that are reshaping industries that, in some cases, have been around for you know a generation or more. Um, typically speaking, we're talking about smaller companies in the younger stages of their development. Uh, with that comes risks. And as a result, you know, most advisors will and, and others will tell you, don't overweight your portfolio towards small caps because you know they do tend to swing uh, in much more broadly than say, you know, a company like a Coca-Cola. And so with that in mind, if you're thinking about how to invest in small caps, um, it is certainly something that you might want to have some exposure to, but it is not something that you want to go whole hog into. So it's maybe a portion of your portfolio. And within that, I think it's even smart to kind of diversify and have several different small cap plays. You know, um, we, we talk about how a well-rounded portfolio for general purposes has, you know, between 10 and 15 stocks at least. And I think that might be good guidance for people interested in investing in small caps. Um, yeah, yeah. Dylan, I mean, I'm a diversified investor. You probably are too. You know, I, I obviously have healthcare stocks in my portfolio, including biotechnology, which technology is right in the name, right? So it's not that big of a leap. Um, but, you know, I probably have 20% or so because I take on a little bit more risk in my portfolio in small caps. But like you said, getting much more than that in the portfolio could expand, expose you to much wider swings during, you know, tough times. And I like to think about small caps as kind of an opportunity for the individual investor to be kind of a venture capitalist, right? Like VCs tend to invest in, you know, dozens of different companies making small bets across all these different small companies with the hopes that a couple of them really pan out. Um, you have the opportunity to do that on the public markets with small cap stocks because these are companies that have really big growth profiles and kind of large runways ahead of them. Um, but they are far more volatile. Yeah. And so that's why you <laughs> right, want to kind of spread your bets. Yeah, with a caveat, right? You get that growth, but you, you pay a price for it. And uh, I think something else worth noting with small caps, we didn't hit this definition earlier, is that typically we're talking about companies between the 500 million and 2 billion market cap range. Um, they're, they're kind of soft cutoffs with micro cap, small cap, mid cap, and large cap. 
but that's generally where you'll hear that term applied. Uh, one of the companies that we're going to talk about was a small cap, now a mid cap, but for the sake of the conversation, we're going to include it. Um, so, Todd, enough background. We've got three small cap tech stocks we're going to talk about today. Why don't we start out with Alarm.com? Alarm.com should interest or potentially excite investors because they're taking an industry that's been a long, around a long time, home security, and they're actually bringing it forward into the 21st century and making it far more relevant to the way that we live our connected lives today. And how exactly are they doing that? Well, okay. So think about you know what did security look like in the past, right? It was all point in time security. Someone breaks a glass window or busts in through a door, or you know you're recording on some grainy black and white video your front door, um, and and then having to go back and try and figure out you know who may have knocked on it at 2 p.m. by watching six hours of tape. It was it was obviously not a very efficient way to monitor the security of, of, of a home. You know, if something happened, you would get a phone call that would go out automatically to the police or the fire department, but it really didn't provide you with a lot of useful insight um, that you can use to manage your household. And what Alarm.com is doing is they're saying, okay, well, what happens if we, you know, allow for real-time monitoring of the home and the systems around in inside the home, and then what kind of insight would that give the homeowner that they can then use to improve their their day to day life? So they came up with an app that plays nice with all of these Internet of Things connected devices that we're incre increasingly installing in our homes, and that app allows you now, Dylan, to you know lock or unlock your doors or armor or disarm your your security system or record in real time uh, on high def uh, video what's going on in and around your house, control your lighting, control your thermostat, do all of these Jetson-like things that for the last 40 years we've been hoping uh, our households would end up you know, incorporating. And this is an Internet of Things kind of style company. You mentioned that before. And typically, you think of devices when you hear Internet of Things. But this is really much more of a software company, right? Yeah. They, I mean, they sell hardware, but it's mostly, you know, they're working with OEMs and third parties um, and then collecting, uh, you know, a little bit of a higher margin end of that from from selling the, the software service. I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, they look at companies like this and they say, okay, we're going to take this and disrupt this industry any industry, and we're going to do that by going direct to the consumer. Well, Alarm.com, that's how they started out. They said, well, what if we take this, these, these, these monitoring and controlling systems and we sell them directly to the consumer? Well, what they soon found out is that a lot of the consumers that are, are early adopters uh, or early inning adopters of this kind of technology, they're relatively wealthy and they're time constrained, and they're really not going to want to go around their house and unscrew all their light bulbs and screw in new light bulbs and take out thermostats and put in thermostats and take off deadbolts and put on deadbolts. So they ended up tapping into the current existing security companies that exist in you know all around America. Um, and offering their app to them to private label or white label or, or not uh, to be used alongside of the stuff that they're already selling, installing, and maintaining for these different homeowners. And it's worked out very well for them. They've had tremendous growth as a result in terms of the number of subscribers, the number of sales, and the company's profitability. 
Yeah, when you think about things that you want to have work correctly, I think home security is definitely one of them. You know, I, I trust a professional to install something like that far more than I trust myself. Um, why well, these we... <laughs> systems, Dylan, right? They're complex. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know to what degree you've installed any of these things in in your your own home, but you know, I've gone through and I've done a couple little things here and there, and then you're trying to get them all to communicate to one another, and it's like, oh my god, the headaches. You mentioned the market opportunity, Todd, and. I think that this, you know, the home security market might not be something that people are super familiar with. What does that look like and and what kind of presence does alarm.com currently have? Dylan, I was a little bit surprised. I mean, I I, I this number shocked me a little bit. There are 22 million homes in America that have security systems in place. 22 million. That seemed like a lot to me. Um, and and what's really interesting about that is that of those 22 million not very many, like 30 or 40% of them, I'll call smart homes, but how smart are these homes really? We're still very early innings in the whole smart home you know, movement. I mean, right now we're really controlling the temperature and the climate and that type of things. I mean, it's not as smart as it will be in 10 years, but a very small percentage of those 22 million are smart homes, yet Alarm's already working with about 5 million of these homeowners, which is Pretty impressive to me, given the fact that they were working with one million back in 2012. Yeah, and that smart home stat. I mean, there are a lot of different things that can qualify as a smart home, right? Having something like uh, Nest could, you know, be a smart home product, or it could be kind of a more integrated, full security solution, like some of the stuff that Alarm.com partners with. Yeah, and we kind of was hinting at this earlier. I mean, you have all these players like Nest and some of these others out there, like Z-Wave and all these other things. And and the idea is you've got all of these different devices. Well, how do you get them all to work and play nicely together, right? Everybody's got an Echo now inside their house, and they're using, you know, I won't use Word because our listeners tell us that it actually triggers it to turn on, the name of the device <laughs> when we ask it to do something. Right? That's very courteous, Todd. Yes, yes. I like to try and help out our listeners wherever possible. <laughs> Um, you know, but you know, you're able now to access alarm.com through your echo to be able to do things like say, dim my lights 30% or, Hey, I'm a little chilly. Can I end up, you know, can I, can I, can I get the air conditioning to go drop down another two degrees or something like that? So it's, it's really become far more than just, okay, I'm securing your home. And if somebody breaks a window, I'm calling the police. You're now able to to use all of this real-time data that's being collected, Dylan, right? And discover all sorts of information about what's going in and around your home. You know, I mean, I don't know about you. I may have snuck out once or twice when I was a kid. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, Alarm.com is going to make that a lot more difficult for the teens of today. Parents, take note. Um, Todd, what are some of the numbers like for this company? You know, we, we talk about how small cap companies tend to be, you know, big growth opportunities. Uh, how do the financials look? You know, we're talking about a fast growing company. You know, revenue on a compounded annual basis has grown about 28% since 2012. In the second quarter, sales were up 33.5% to 86 million. You know, it's not a Goliath company, it's a small cap company, but it's growing rapidly. You know, if you look at the way that their revenue breaks down, Dylan, most of it's coming from higher margin software. It gets about 40% of its sales from from that uh, or a little bit more. Um, you know, and, and its guidance for 2017 is for 25% year over year growth. Nothing to complain about there, right? 326 million 
at least in sales, and about a dollar in, in earnings per share. So it's profitable too. So you've got a company that's growing double digits, generating a profit for investors in a really, I think, attractive market. And something that is, I think, kind of a major trait of most small cap stocks is that uh, they don't necessarily trade for kind of reasonable quote unquote valuations, uh, you know, on a PE or price to sales basis. Um, you know, at two billion dollar market cap, uh, this is obviously a company that is kind of priced for growth. But um, when you are looking at what might be in front of it, that that's kind of what you're paying for, right? You're off, you're going to end up paying typically on a price to sales multiple. You're going to pay up seven to twelve times sales for these fast growers. The thing you have to remember, though, is that you know if you've got a company that's growing twenty percent annually, you know the revenue is going to double in five years. So you know you really do have to, you know, think about the potential, how big the market could be, and then figure out what a fair value is. You know, if you say, okay, well maybe it's worth five times sales in five years, and sales are going to double, then maybe it's worth three billion or it's worth four billion. I mean, some of these are puts and takes that you're going to have to. You're going to have to consider when you consider how big the market opportunity is versus how much do I, am I willing to pay up to buy the stock. And that plays into the overall volatility that we see with a lot of these companies, right? It is very difficult to forecast out what a market might look like. And a lot of people have different estimates and different expectations for what a company could grow into. And because of that, as a company reports earnings, um, maybe the picture pans out as they expect, maybe it doesn't. Uh, there will be major corrections with the stock price accordingly. Um, yeah, and you've got risks, right? You've got competitors out there that have been in this market for 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 years and years and years, like uh, ADT, et cetera. They, and they're they're not going to just give up this marketplace easily. So you know, competition could increase. You've got you know technology evolving so rapidly, and who knows? You know, how is Amazon going to try? Could they at some point leverage Echo to try and? And hone in on this market, and, and who knows, right? So there are some risks. Investors need to remember that. All right, Todd, we've got two more small cap tech stocks we're going to talk about. Before we get over that part of the conversation, though, I just want to thank Harry's again for supporting the show. Anyone that watches the video segments from IF knows that I am not all that familiar with a razor. I tend to have some scruff or even a full-on beard most of the time while we're taping. But when Harry started supporting the show, I had to give their stuff a shot and see what I was missing. I have to say, giving Harry's a try, I, I understand why people go with the clean-shaven look. I got a nice close shave without any nicks or cuts, did it just before my cousin's wedding a little while back, and was looking good for all the family pictures, kept my mom happy. Harry's is so confident that you too will love their blades, they're giving you their trial set, a $13 value, for free. All you have to do is cover $3 shipping. That trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. To get this set, just go over to harrys.com slash fool. That's harrys.com slash fool. Okay, Todd, we're back. Let's talk small cap stock number two. This is a lesser known name, a company by the name of Impinge. What exactly do they do? It's interesting because this is a lesser known stock, and it's, it's, much, it's the smallest stock of the three that we're going to talk about. Um, but it's been around a long time. They do something called RFID, so radio frequency identification. And this is something that retail has been dabbling with since you know the 2000s, trying to figure out, are there better ways to track and manage inventory? And I think that it's fair to say that we're at the point now in, in 
in the technology where we're at a tipping point. And we're going to see retailers, healthcare companies, travel company, unit, anything basically, Dylan, that has a good, a product that they want to, to take from manufacturing through distribution, through their warehousing, to their stores or whatever, to the actual end user. If they want greater intelligence into that, they're going to adopt some form of radio frequency ID. And if that's the case, then Impinge could be perfectly positioned to benefit from it. And this type of tracking that we're talking about is really done with kind of small devices, these little tags, right? Oh my God, yes. We're talking about you know already billions of these little tags being attached to goods to pallets, to whatever, to be able to quickly identify them. So you've got these little tags, and these little tags um, uh, cost pennies, right? They're, they're extremely cheap. Then you've got readers that can be handheld, and then you've got gateways that are much larger, and you can use those basically to track, you know, say what's in an entire um, uh, warehouse <laughs> all at once. And they're figuring out ways not only to be able to have this tag and be able to read the information on the tag so they know where that product and good is, but also be able to tie that to software that provides all sorts of inv inventory insights along that, you know, the, the chain, along that distribution cycle. And that's why you're seeing a lot, that's why I think we're at a tipping point. You're seeing a lot of these big retailers saying, hmm, maybe I should tag every single item in my store or every single item that goes in or out of my warehouse so that, you know, it becomes easier for me to know if I have red shirts, blue shirts, green shirts in my store, where they happen to be located. There's all sorts of you know, really cool futuristic ways that I think companies can, can use RFID to not only you know, eliminate waste and cut back on shrinkage, things like stealing, um, uh, but also connect more with their customers. So, Todd, you mentioned all of the different elements that go into tracking, all these different hardware pieces and the software that goes into managing it. Where does Impinge play in this market? They're a relatively large player. They team up with others uh, like Avery Dennison, um, to, which accounts for you know, a fairly large amount of, of, of their sales. Um, this year, they're expected to supply $7 billion, $7.2 billion. Um, worth of tags to the industry, uh, which would be 18% year-over-year growth. And they've got about 60% of the market. You know, they have competition out there um, in different spots of what they do. But they like to say that they are the soup-to-nuts provider of RFID, meaning that they have not only the tags, but the readers, the gateways, and the software to analyze all of that information. Okay, so they're selling a ton of tags. They're also selling a lot of stuff you need to manage this uh, kind of on a broad stroke level. What does that look like for them financially? All right, so their revenue has doubled over the last four years. In 2016, it was up 43% to $112 million. They think that they can get 25% annual growth through 2019-2020. And in the second quarter, their revenue was up 31% to $34 million. And they showed a non-GAAP profit of about six cents per share. Now, there are some caveats here. <laughs> there always are. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right, Dylan? I mean, there always are, especially when you're talking about small cap stocks, right? They're still investing a lot of money. There's still a lot of moving pieces. We're at a tipping point, like I said, and it's not a guarantee that you're going to get uh, even steady growth. You know, the, the growth may be, you know, double digits, 20, 30 or 40 percent in one year or maybe 15 to 20 or, you know, less in another year. And that's because each one of these adopters, if they're going to be big, could use billions alone of these tags and significant that means their rollouts will significantly affect how quickly um this company is able to translate into the, that into sales so you are going to have to kind of pay attention to the quarterly results with this company see what they're saying as far as what deals are getting pushed out or brought forward what their timeline looks like this and then take the long view of it and say that if you believe that you know, someone walking into the, the the fitting room wearing a red shirt and putting it on, that it would be useful for the retailer then to be able to show them on a smart mirror what that same shirt would look like in green or, or, or yellow or some other color and then be able to pop up some sort of an advertisement for pants that might go well with that shirt. I mean, there's just so many different ways beyond inventory management that RFID could um, uh, excite shoppers and build brand loyalty. Something I can't help but think about, Todd, looking at a company that makes essentially hardware, but you know, kind of components too, um, is you know that has not always been a very great place to be as a business. You know, you look at consumer tech, and there are a lot of hardware companies out there that haven't panned out, and margins can be kind of tough to maintain in the hardware business. Uh, how do they look in this space, and is there the worry that there might be other people that can come in and kind of undercut them? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, simple, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the tags themselves. Again, we're talking about pennies on the dollar. It's going to come down to functionality and cost. So, I mean, the more technology you can you can pack into that, then maybe you can charge a little bit more in premium pricing, right? That's where the software that reads these tags is going to come in handy in trying to differentiate. Uh, between just saying getting a dumb tag versus getting something that's a little bit more of an intelligent tag. Um, it's going to be interesting, too, to see how all this progresses because, you know, you could have companies that, it, it, that incorporate things like near-field communication to add additional value after the purchase is made and the person's actually at home and interacting with technology around them. Um, you have the potential to print these tags, you know, with some sort of biodegradable ink or actually embed them in fabric uh, during the whole manufacturing process, um, and whoever does that first theoretically could could be disruptive to that industry and affect pricing and market share. So yeah, this this is a relatively er, you know is although RFID has been around for a while, I think that we're finally at a point now where we're seeing real case usage you know ways that 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 could that could really ignite its growth. And with that, you're going to get a lot of different you know competitive pushes pushes and pulls. Yeah, so with uh, with the companies that we talk about today, it seems Impinge, you know, both because of its size, I think it's about an $850 million company, and because of the space that it operates in, probably one of the riskier companies that we're looking at today. I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, the growth reward and risk, right, Dylan? I mean, we've got a, a potential for for, you know, apparel alone is an 80 billion tag 
market opportunity. <laughs> wow. You know, that's that's 10 times the, the forecasted number of tags that that uh, Impinge is going to sell this year, right? So, so yes, there's a huge market opportunity. With that comes a huge risk that someone else is going to go in there and, and innovate or, or undercut. Um, but I think it's definitely a stock that should be on people's radar. All right, we have one more stock that people maybe should have on their radar, and this one kind of involves us taking some liberties with the term small cap. Uh, this is a company that, when you started following them, Todd, was a small cap company. They have kind of moved into the four to five billion dollar market cap territory, which makes them a mid cap stock. Why don't we talk about Paycom? Um, this is actually a company that some fools might be a little bit familiar with. Well, if you're getting a paycheck, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully, if you're employed by an employer that has, you know. Um, you know, dozens to hundreds of employees, then that employer may actually be using uh, Paycom services. And you know, what's funny is that you know, Dylan, we're talking about in the previous two, you know, these these companies that are kind of reimagining different industries, right? You know, we've got you know, Alarm reimagining home security. We've got Impinge reimagining you know, re, re inventory management. And now we've got the stodgy, boring human resources industry, and Paycom is blowing that up. Yeah, I know it's an industry that's been around for a long time. You know, one of their main competitors, uh, ADP, was a, a favorite stock of Peter Lynch back in the '80s. So oh, sure. um, this is, this is an industry that has been around forever, and you know, treated investors fairly well. Um, what exactly are they doing to try to unseat some of the established players in this market? I think it, what's what's helpful for investors to understand is is where you know human resources was in the past, and then where it is now, and then maybe where it's going. And, you know, hey, Dylan, a little fun fact between you and me, a lot of people don't know, in a past life, I actually worked in human resources. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, back then in the day, um, you know, the way that human resources worked, it was very uh, siloed. You had, you know, recruitment, you had training, you had payroll, tax reporting, you had evaluation, you had all of these different pieces of the human resource puzzle, and oftentimes different vendors and different databases for each one of those things. Um, obviously, that's not an efficient way to manage and get the most out of your workforce, right? Absolutely. We can both agree on that, right? So, you know, obviously, one of the things that, you know, that leads us to naturally assume is that, well, wouldn't it be more useful is if you could break down all those barriers in between each one of those different, you know, parts of HR to be able to gain greater insight and, you know, enable um, uh, a better relationship, I guess, between your, the workers and, and the employer. And yes, that's exactly what's happening now and what's happening at a company like Paycom, because what they realized early on was that if we build a cloud-based system that centers around one singular database and then build out functionality across benefits and recruitment and time and attendance, all of those different parts of the HR function, then, wow, we could be onto something big here and we could disrupt the market and maybe win away business from ADP and also paychecks and some of these older legacy players. And that's exactly what's happened. And I can't help but notice that what they're doing here isn't all that different than what Impinge is doing. 
and what Alarm.com is doing, where they're basically providing this central hub where you can kind of manage a whole bunch of different things in one place. Right? It's it's being able to oversee a whole bunch of different functions um, from one dash, kind of. Right. It's all about being able to get more information together in one place so you can gain greater insight from that information. And in in human resources, that's incredibly important, especially since uh, more and more employees are uh, working from home or in remote offices. They're not cent- as centralized anymore. So if you can allow employees to have greater self-service control over their human resource experience, be it training or benefit choice or whatever, that's a good thing. And if you can have all of this information in one spot, then as an employer, you're much more likely to find trouble spots early on that you can address or or whatever, whatever it happens to be the insight that you're, you're going to get from having all of this information compiled in one place. And that, Dylan, is resonating with employers. And as a result, this company is growing and growing pretty quickly. And what exactly does that look like? I mean, it sounds like they're offering something that employers can get behind, employees can get behind. Uh, do the growth numbers bear that out? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've got sales that were gro- are growing very rapidly. You know, they were up 46% last year, 329 million. In the second quarter, sales were up 33% to 98 million. So, you know, you're talking about of close to a $400 million run rate. And, you know, the way that this company makes its money is it charges either a per period fee or or a per period fee plus a fee for each employee. So you can imagine, you know, Dylan, in a in a in a in an environment where you've got low unemployment and you've got a lot of hiring going on, um, that that's actually, you know, providing a, a relatively nice growth stream for the company to be able to, you know, not only go out and open up new offices where they're in in markets and be able to win away business from some of their competitors, but to also be able to take their existing client base and say, hey, we now have extra functionality. You know, you want to use us for time and attendance. You want to use us for, you know, tax form reporting. You want to use us for some of this other stuff. It'll cost you a little bit extra. You want to do that? Um, so there's a lot of, of of opportunities for organic growth for this company as well. And uh, at a recent conference, Dylan, the CEO actually, you know, outlined you know what he thinks that market opportunity could be. And you know, he said that this this could ha- be a billion dollar sales company uh, at some point in the road. You know, you get to take that with a grain of salt, right? But you know, the market is big enough theoretically to support that. Yeah, yes, that, that yeah, major grain of salt taking that, but you know, something to kind of keep in mind. Something that I really like when I look at this company, Todd, is you hit on the idea of there being kind of a pay per head um, pricing model, and the idea that this business scales with the businesses that it supports. Right? It's this kind of symbiotic relationship. You also see that working out with companies like Shopify. So, so software companies that especially provide services to business and grow as the businesses that they support grow. I think that's generally a good sign and something that should kind of, you know, have investors' ears perk up a little bit. Yeah, and the other thing that's interesting too, Dylan, I just you just triggered something in my head. You know, the, historically, you know, payroll and payroll processing that's been a very tooth and nail kind of market. <laughs> you know, very very price sensitive, a lot of battling back and forth to win business year over year, high churn, right? If you can create a system that is very deeply embedded within the company, you know, again, unified one database, everything feeding off this one database, right? Um, maybe that gives you more stickiness 
and helps to reduce your churn and in turn gives you more opportunities to enjoy that symbiotic relationship over time as the companies get bigger? Well, yeah, there are big costs to switching providers if you're a business, right? You get used to using something, you use it for a year, maybe two years, your employees become trained on it and very, very used to using it. And then you switch over to a new provider, there are months and months of new training, understanding how the software works, getting all your employees on board. So if you can be a good service provider, um, really kind of cause a frictionless experience for your end users, uh, I think that's gonna I think it's gonna work pretty well for the business. Right. And you know, PayPal by their own admission, they're not the lowest cost provider out there in this business, in this industry. So, you know, you are, you're competing, you said you summed it up beautifully. You're you're competing not just on price, you're also competing on functionality and service. You know, how 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 what kind of a relationship you can establish with with um, with that employer, and if it's a good a good relationship, then you get all sorts of benefits that come from that. Um, not the least of that would be referral business, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if something works for one person, chances are they're going to tell somebody else that works in HR. You know, their their buddy across the street about it. Um, Todd, we mentioned some of the legacy competitors, and I think for this industry in particular, in this small cap that we're talking about out of the three, this might be one that it's really good to kind of take a step back and look at the industry and how some of the competitors stack up to Paycom on sales. Yeah, I think it's important because again, now I think Dylan, you're kind of hinting me towards that risks area. <laughs> you know, how, how might this all play out? And and you know, I think that it, from an investor standpoint, you're all excited now because I've just been ra- ranting and raving about how great a company Paycom is. But you, you need to remember too that you know none of these legacy players are sitting on their sitting back on their heels. Um, they're all doing these same things. They're trying to create unified solutions. The disadvantage they have is that oftentimes they're trying to make those unified solutions out of legacy products, which you know rather than building them from the ground up to be you know cloud based. However, you know that being said. This is a big market. You know, ADP is the gorilla. They do 12 billion a year uh, in sales. Uh, you've also got paychecks out there. They're doing three billion a year in sales. So when you think about the fact that those two companies are doing 15 billion in sales, you know, maybe Paycom's idea of being a billion dollar company isn't so far fetched, but they are going to have to battle. And as we talked about, battle not only on price, but they're going to have to battle on, 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 you know, service and functionality. Yeah, and they're going to be going up against deeper-pocketed competitors when it comes to the R&D and kind of innovation side of what they do, um, which is something that we see time and time again with upstarts in the tech space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Todd, I think that wraps all of our companies that we wanted to talk about. Anything kind of specific to this conversation or generally about small caps that you want to leave investors with before I let you go? You know, when Christine asked me this on the Wednesday show, I mean, anybody who's listening to the healthcare <laughs> podcast will know my standard response is going to be diversify, 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 right? Of course. So, my final takeaway is that, you know, don't go out and buy, invest 100% of your portfolio <laughs> in these three stocks just because Dylan and I uh, happened to talk about them on today's show. Um, they're, they're interesting companies. They're doing some pretty exciting things. Uh, consider them to, as a small part of your portfolio uh, within that small mid-cap range. Yeah, and, and certainly a space where you want to kind of slowly position build rather than buy what you would consider to be your full position all in one stake, right? You want to be able to dollar cost average as there are some fluctuations with the stock price and maybe some hiccups along the way as they kind of go down that growth runway. 
Oh, I totally believe that. Yeah. And that's the way I invest myself personally. I, I think that you, you can take a starter position and, you know, watch these companies as they play out. And, you know, I mean, they, they're expensive stocks. They're going to be more volatile. And hopefully that gives you some opportunities to add to them at some attractive prices as we go. I think that's a good note to end on right there. Thanks for hopping on the Perfect. show, Tom. Thanks for having me today, Dylan. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll have to get you back on sometime soon, as long as Christine's okay with it. Anytime. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any tech stocks on your radar, shoot us a note at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. I'd love to hear about them. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Big ups to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. Today's show required a decent amount of editing because of my goofs. For Todd Campbell, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. <laughs>